0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you don't have your Bible with you or you're not using the U version plan, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you, and that is on page 185 this morning, so you can follow along. So as I was reading through the text this week, one of the things um, that I realized, and I think we've talked about this before, is there are there are no careless words in the Bible. And here's what I mean by that. Everything that's in the Bible is supposed to be there, and there's nothing that's not in the Bible that isn't supposed to be there. Does that make sense? There are no, there are no careless words in the Bible, and, and i found that that usually, reve- that usually reveals itself. I haven't used this phrase in a while, but it usually reveals itself in those little, little throwaway verses that we, that we just kind of glance past, we just kind of read through, and don't pay very much attention um, to them. Jesus had this to say about the scriptures when he was tempted. He said, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. So that means there are no careless words in scripture. There's nothing there that's not meant to be there. Um, People do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a promise. And we ought to look at scripture as a promise and as we've been talking about during the month of December over the past few weeks we know that God keeps his promises so when we read the words of God what we find is life. Paul tells us in first Corinthians 10 in a couple different places he says that things happened in the Old Testament as a warning to us as an example for us and they were documented to warn us So as we're reading through the Old Testament and sometimes we wonder why these stories are in there, Paul tells us, Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit tells us that those things are there so that that they would warn us. So we would read them and we would see the mistakes that the people in the Old Testament made and, and we would be warned by them. We would see that as an example of what not to do and what to do. And because every word matters, what that means for us is we need to read Scripture faithfully. We need to spend time in the text. We need to read it cautiously. We need to read it um, carefully. And as we talked last week, because God honors faithfulness, when we read the Bible carefully, what happens is we we are taught. What happens is we are corrected. When we read the Bible carefully, we are rebuked. When we read the Bible carefully, we are trained in righteousness. This is the design of the text. And again, these are things that we've been talking about all month long. God kept his promise to Abraham by giving him a son, Isaac, through whom all of the earth would be blessed. And and the last couple weeks, we followed through that lineage of Matthew Chapter 1, the genealogy that begins with Abraham and ends with Jesus. So God kept his promise to Abraham. That genealogy is a demonstration of that promise. So if we are ever wondering, does God keep his promises, we can simply look to the genealogies. God honored the faithfulness of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz by providing them a son who would be famous throughout all of Israel. Well, how is this son, Obed, famous throughout all of Israel? Well, he was the grandfather of David. King David, that's the character that we are going to talk about today. And you probably know who David is. He's the slayer of Goliath, the man after God's own heart, who as king slept with another man's wife, and then had him murdered because she was pregnant. He's a musician, and he's the writer of 73 of the 150 Psalms. David brought 12 tribes together into one kingdom. But that's not the beginning of the story. One of the things I love is origin stories. So one of the reasons why I loved all of the early Marvel films is because they were origin stories. We we learn what people's motivation is. We learn what creates their character and how who they are is forged through their experiences. Today we're going to talk about David. We're going to talk about the beginning of the story for David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And what you need to know is, is kind of where this sits in the Bible story. We do this all the time, something we've, we've talked about in, in elders meetings and pastoral conversations about the Bible is, is the setting really matters, that context really matters, where we are in the story. And where this is kind of taking place in, in 1 Samuel is right at the end of the time of the judges. In fact, Samuel, the person who the book is named after, is one of the last judges of Israel. He's a prophet. But he wasn't the last judge. The two last judges were his sons, Joel and Abiha. only they were greedy, and they accepted bribes, and they weren't just, and, and the people could see where this was going, and, and what's interesting is they saw this wickedness of these, of these men, of these judges, and despite the fact that they too were wicked people, we talked about that last week, we've talked about that in the book of Judges, despite the fact that they were wicked people, they saw that their leaders were poor leaders. So they went to Samuel at the end of his life and they said this, give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. So just let that one sink in for a moment. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. And at this point, Samuel knows that all is lost for the, for the people of God. So he goes to God and he says, I just don't know what to do with these people. And God says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. In fact, they are rejecting me. So when the people of God, the people that God had delivered from Egypt Years and years and years and years earlier, when they demanded to have a king like all of the other nations, what they were doing is they were they were rejecting God. The fullness of their rejection of God was actually kind of complete in this moment. We don't want God to be our king. We don't want the people that God has appointed as our judges to lead us. We want a man to lead us. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, we, I know I said 16, we're getting there. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're introduced to a guy named Saul. And this is how he is described. Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. And it, interestingly enough, it is this man whom God tells Samuel to anoint as king. And as we're going to talk a little bit today about David, this ought to stir up some questions in us that, I, that I'm going to plan to answer in a little bit. So Saul becomes king and, and almost from the very start, Saul's reign is a, is a disaster. Sure, he, he kind of defeats the Philistines and begins to kind of work through um, trying to do what God wants him to do. But he's disobedient, and at some point, he takes on the role of the priests. He doesn't want to wait for Samuel to get there to, to make an offering. So, so he says, I'm king, so I'm going to act like a priest too, and I'm going to offer this offering. And then Samuel shows up and is like, essentially, John Mahalan paraphrase, what are you thinking? Who do you think you are? Because of your sinfulness, Saul, God is going to take your kingdom away from you. So what next? What happens when when God's people are disobedient in and of themselves and they name a king who is disobedient? What happens? Well, that's 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So go, fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem sounds familiar, doesn't it? We talked about it last week in Ruth's story. If we are familiar at all with the Christmas story that takes place in Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse. Sound familiar? We talked about him last week in the genealogy. Jesse is Obed's son. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. So one of the things that we've talked about in this series is that God honors faithfulness. Saul was not faithful to God, so God stopped honoring him. God honors faithfulness. And when we are not faithful to God... God stops honoring us. But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. I want you to notice here, too, that just because Saul fails doesn't mean that God stops. Just because Saul fails doesn't mean that God stops. God has a promise to keep. God made a promise to Abraham. The nations will be blessed because of you. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one, one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. This is why I began a little earlier about no careless words in scripture. Remember how Saul was introduced to us? He was the most handsome man in Israel. He was head and shoulders taller than anyone else. And here's Samuel falling into the same rhythm, the same trap. And God says, Don't judge him by his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next Samuel summoned Shimea, but Samuel said, "Neither is this the one the Lord has chosen." In the same way all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, "The Lord has not chosen any of these." Then Samuel asked, "Are these all the sons you have?" "There's still the youngest," replied, "but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats." Do you see how Jesse views his youngest son? Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. Now this one's going to cause a little bit of tension for you. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. To be clear, David wasn't chosen because he was dark and handsome and had beautiful eyes. David was chosen because God sees beyond what we see. David was chosen because God sees beyond what Jesse saw. David was chosen because God sees beyond what Samuel saw. And over the next 40 years, if you were to just flip through the next book and a half of the book of the Bible, in the next 40 years, you would see that there were lots of great things that happened in David's reign, and there were lots of terrible things that happened in David's reign and we ask this question, why? Because he was, he was the Lord's anointed. Well, he was also a human. And this is beginning to answer the question I kind of put in your mind a little while ago about Saul. See, David was never going to be the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan because David was a human. And David wasn't meant to be the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. He was meant to point to, us and the people of Israel to someone else. He was meant to point them to the Messiah. It's kind of like this. The people want a king because they want all of their wildest dreams to come true. So God gives them a king. And what does the king do? Fails miserably. And then the people said, well, not like that. Let's get another king. And you know what that king is going to do? He's going to fail miserably. And the people are going to say, well, not like that. And there's going to be this series of king after king after king after king where the people are ultimately going to realize that what they need is not a human king. They need something else. And my hunch is many of us have experienced something similar to this in our own lives. And if we're only, it's only being we are honest with ourselves that we will recognize it. We've thought to ourselves, if I could just have this thing, whatever that thing is, then I'll find satisfaction. Only to get that thing. And how long does that satisfaction last? You know, next year, the iPhone 16 is coming out, Right? They're on to something. They're on to it. They know our levels of dissatisfaction. Every, oh, next year's also an election year. Isn't that going to be a blast? Can't wait for 11 months of how this person is going to save our country. And what's so sad is. As Christians, many of us fall for that. We believe if we could just get the right, like, are you paying attention to what's going on in this book? If we could just get the right leader who will solve all of our problems, it's almost as if this is baked into the system. It's almost as if God is trying to reveal to people that people are not enough. Who's enough is God. And remember, the people weren't rejecting Samuel, they were rejecting God. So shortly after David's reign, when he passes away, there's this, there's a fight for who's going to be the next king. The kingdom gets split into two, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And over the next several hundred years, again, if you were to just read through your Bible, what you would see is kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and most of the kings are just terrible. And despite decades of warnings and, and calls for repentance and reminders about who God was and how God is always faithful, the people continue to ignore and they reject God. They ignore and they reject his, his, his plans and purposes for worship they ignore and they reject God's plans and purposes for for caring for the marginalized in their society. And that's a really big one in the Old Testament. God really cares about widows and orphans and foreigners. And the complete and the people completely reject this. And Toward the end of the series of kings, God begins to send them prophets. And the prophets basically all have the same message. It's a real joyous one. It's this. If you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. I encourage you sometime to read through the prophets. Read through the minor prophets and see what happens. And to be sure, to be clear, this isn't evidence of God's heavy-handedness. This isn't evidence of God's hard-heartedness towards his people. It's because he loves them, because he cares about them, and he's warning them, and he wants them to repent, and he wants them to be the kind of people that he's called out of Egypt. He wants them to be the kind of people that he's called to be his. And first, the northern king of Israel falls to the Assyrians, They never had a chance, the northern kingdom. I don't think there was a good king among them, in fact. So off they went into Assyrian captivity. And here's the interesting thing. The people in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, David's kingdom, the lineage of the kings in David's kingdom, they're all watching what's happening in the north, and and they're kind of thinking to themselves, I'm sure glad I'm not a sinner like them. Only here's the secret. They really were. They just sinned differently than the way that their northern counterparts did. And in comparison, there were some good kings. You'll know a good king when it says something to the effect of, he followed as David did, he worshipped as David did, he led as David did. But eventually, they gave in to the same sins. They refused to worship properly. They refused to care for the widow and the orphan and the foreigner and the marginalized. And none of this surprised God. Because God sees beyond what we see. God wasn't caught off guard by any of this. God wasn't scrambling to find another plan. God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to bless the entire earth through his offspring. Ruth was a part of that plan as the great-grandmother of David. David was a part of that plan as a model example. Despite his flaws, he was still the man after God's own heart. And I know that creates tension for us. How do we call David the man after God's own heart? It's almost as if God sees beyond what we see. But the reality is this. Babylon is coming for Judah. Babylon is coming. And the line of kings seems to be ending. So these prophets come and and one of those prophets is a man named Isaiah. And he is sent as this, as this Judah experiment starts to wind down, starts to circle the drain of history. Surely there is people who are asking, how is God going to fulfill his promise? But God made a promise. God told us that all of the nations were going to be blessed through Abraham. We know the story of Ruth. God made a promise. So Isaiah comes, and again, it's it's hard. It's heavy. It's weighty. It's honest. It's a warning. And it's filled with hope. In Isaiah 9... This is page 430 in those Bibles in front of you. This is the one that many of us are more familiar with, and it's actually where we got the name of our series. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. Do you hear the hope in this? And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. This passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. I love that his ancestor David God hasn't forgotten his people. God's made a promise to his people. God honors faithfulness. And because the people who came before them were faithful, God honors them. He hasn't forgotten. So what this means is this person that Isaiah is talking about is going to come from the family line of David. But if all of the kings and all of God's people are about to be carted off into Babylon... They're about to go away. How is God going to fulfill his promise? How can God do what he said he was going to do? That's why chapter 11 from Isaiah is so important. Listen to what it says. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. Now I want you to get this image. Isaiah, under the influence, under the power, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is combining God, is, is comparing God's people to a tree that's been chopped down. That's at ground level, and what we see is a stump. And this is what God says: out of that stump will grow a shoot. How many of you have ever seen that in real life, in your yard, on your farm, where you've got a stump and something comes off of it that's going to grow again? Have you ever seen that before? Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. Listen to what this says next. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of the cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hands, hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy you in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne will bear the salvation It will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Do you see what's happening in this text? What Isaiah is doing, he's he's describing what's going to happen when when this branch of David comes and begins, continues the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people, those who remain in Assyria and northern Egypt, in southern Egypt and Ethiopia and Elam and Babylonia and Hamath and all the distant coastlands. You will be the father of many nations. All of the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is God's promise to Abraham in Genesis. He will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. If we were to reread through the book of Romans as we did earlier, what we would see is as Christians, we are this Israel. Then at last the jealousy between Israel and Judah will end. They will not be rivals anymore. They will join forces to swoop down on Philistia to the west. Together they will attack and plunder the nations to the east. They will occupy the lands of Edom and Moab and Ammon will obey them. The Lord will make a dry path through the Gulf of the Red Sea. He will wave his hand over the Euphrates River, sending a mighty wind to divide it into seven streams so it can be easily crossed on foot. He will make a highway for the remnant of his people, the remnant coming from Assyria, just as he did for Israel long ago when they returned from Egypt. What we're seeing in the words of Isaiah is the way that God is going to fulfill his promises. And as God's people, if we would, if we would simply be faithful to him when we are faithful To God. God honors our faithfulness. God is communicating to his people that he sees beyond what they see. What they see is the northern kingdom has been hauled off to Assyria, and the southern kingdom is next, and the Babylonians are are massing at the border, and they're ready to come in. And God, through Isaiah, is saying, It's not the end of the story. See, there's something else that's going on here. You are a part of this plan, but you are not the plan. God has a plan and a purpose for his people. I want to go back to David for a moment. God did not look at David for all of his potential. God did not see what David had to offer. God saw what Jesse and Samuel did not see. God saw what he was going to accomplish in the purpose of David. Jesse and Samuel, they saw a boy, and God saw a man after his own heart. They saw a shepherd. And what God saw was a king. And this was not because of who David was, but because of who God is. Because of what God accomplishes. This is the mercy of God. This is the goodness of God on display that he sees beyond what we see. See, without God, Abraham was just an old man from Haran. And what Abraham was going to do without God is he was going to die childless. And we would never know his name if it weren't for what God had done in Abraham's life. See, God keeps his promises. Without God... Boaz would have been just like the vast majority of the rest of the people at the time of the judges, doing whatever seemed right in his own eyes. He wouldn't be following systems and structures that looked out for widows and foreigners and marginalized people. He wouldn't be doing all of those things. He would have been just like everyone else. He wouldn't have cared a single bit about Ruth, much less redeemed her. Without God, Naomi would have returned to Bethlehem childless, she would have died. But God honors faithfulness. Without God, David is just a no-account shepherd, not even worthy of bringing in for a feast, not even worthy of bringing in for an offering. But God sees beyond what we see. And each one of these statements, God keeps his promises, and God honors faithfulness, and God sees beyond what we see. Each one of these statements is is meant for us too. God sees these same things. One of my favorite texts is Ephesians chapter 2. It's on page 731 in that Bible, in that seat back in front of you. This is what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So if we wonder, or if we think falsely, that God has saved us because of all of our potential, this text ought to just pop that big head of yours By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. We have no potential outside of who God is. We have no purpose outside of who God is. We're subject to God's anger. Well, thank God the story doesn't end there. But... God is so rich in mercy. And He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, even though we were 70 plus years old and couldn't have any children, even though our husband has died and our two sons with them, even though I'm just a shepherd boy. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Not because you have potential, but because of God's grace. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God salvation is not a reward for all the good things we have done. For we, oh, let's go back. Salvation is not a reward for all the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. If we were walking around boasting about our potential, God must have seen something special in me, and that's why he saved me. It's not what this text tells us. Verse 10 For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. You know, there's a lot of talk in Nebraska over the past couple weeks about the transfer portal. The transfer portal. Who are we going to get Who's going to be our quarterback next season? Who can we bring in? Who's going to save us? What I find very interesting in that conversation is I hear very little about what teams are going to do for those they bring in. What I find so fascinating is we are so concerned, and this isn't just Nebraska football. This is politics. This is the way we view our jobs and our finances and our houses and our cars. We're so concerned about what those things are going to do for us. We're so concerned about the transfer portal that if we just get the right thing, everything's going to be fixed. And what, what I want you to know is that God's God's not sitting up in heaven, talking with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, figuring out who they need to bring in to wrap up the season, right? It's not a conversation about the gifts, talents, and skills that we have, and if, and if they could just get the right person into the right slot, this whole plan of God's is really going to take off, and everyone is going to be saved because that work has already been done in the person of Jesus. See, the message of Ephesians chapter 2 is that God takes people who are wholly unqualified and completely inadequate and ill-equipped for the task at hand, and what he does is he makes them a masterpiece. He takes us, dead in our sins, dead in our transgressions, all hope is lost, and he makes each and every one of us as followers of Christ, he makes us a masterpiece. And we, if we are Christians, are that masterpiece. And it's not because of what we've done it's because of who Christ is, and it's because of what Christ has done in us. It's, it's not only a past tense thing. It's not, it's not that Christ did this one thing on the cross thousands of years ago, but it's what Christ is accomplishing in our lives today. This is not some mere past event that we are casting our hope in. But it's what God is accomplishing through us and in us today, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. And maybe maybe you don't see it. Maybe you're sitting there and maybe because of your sin, okay, John, but you don't know what I did. You don't know what I said. You don't know that thing that I did 20 years ago or an hour and a half ago. You don't know anything about me. One of the things I love so much about Isaiah chapter 11 is verse 3. He said this, he will not judge by appearance or make a decision based on hearsay. What we need to realize, what we need to understand is that looks can be deceiving And we shouldn't believe everything we hear. Not just what other people say to us, but I mean that inner voice. That inner voice that that condemns you and curses you and fills you with needless guilt and needless shame. See, our spiritual enemy would have us believe that the end is near and all hope is lost. Our spiritual enemy would have us believe that we're living in the Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 world, that we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our disobedience. That we are subject to God's anger. This spiritual enemy would have us believe that our best days are behind us. This spiritual enemy would have us believe that we are still lost in our sins. But God... Keeps his promises. God honors faithfulness. God sees beyond what we see. There are many promised sons in the Old Testament, sons in whom much hope was placed. And as God fulfilled his promises, through their births, God had a much bigger plan and a bigger purpose in mind for you. He had in his head the ultimate child of promise, and that's Jesus, the Messiah. And I wonder, do you know him? I wonder, do you understand that all of the things that we seek after, that we find no satisfaction in, We're just reliving the Old Testament cycle of receiving what we want only to find out we don't really want what we have. And Jesus ends that cycle. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for your word. I am grateful for scripture that there are no empty words. There are no meaningless words. I'm thankful that you see us in our position as unqualified, inadequate. And yet, because of your love, you sent your son, Jesus, to die for us. So that we might be the fulfillment of your promise. We might be the way that you fulfill your promises. That we might be faithful, that we would be honored and that we would see beyond what we see and have your eyes. It's in your son's name I pray, amen.